Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Rahul Singhvi. Rahul is the co-founder and CEO of Resilience. The company made a splash in the fall of 2020 when it debuted with a huge $800 million Series A financing. Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners, a previous guest on the long run, led the deal. Bob saw what so many others saw, a global supply chain for manufacturing that was suddenly vulnerable to disruptions from a pandemic and more recently from war. What's different is that he chose to act. He and other investors came together in a big way to found resilience as a domestic manufacturing response to this vulnerability. They saw an opportunity to build up more capacity in the US and Canada for making advanced biologics and gene and cell therapies with a network of high-tech facilities. Rahul came to this moment with a wealth of pertinent experience. He had spent 25 years of his career working on vaccine manufacturing by and large. He's been busy the past two years at this startup, acquiring existing biotech manufacturing facilities and retooling them with advanced technology and newly trained people. He and his team have been forming partnerships with large and small companies that need to manufacture advanced products and could use help with sharpening their processes and developing technology at scale. A lot has happened in the first couple years. The vision of what Resilience is doing has become more clear, at least to an outside observer like me. I've written a fair bit about the opportunity for more domestic biomanufacturing, for national security reasons, for national high-tech competitiveness, for regional economic development, for creating high-quality manufacturing jobs, and for creating stable businesses. Rahul also points to a technology industry analogy in which more specialized, sophisticated partners work together in an ecosystem rather than each individual company trying to own every piece of the value chain. It's an example of horizontal scaling that has worked in tech and could now work for biotech, he says. I think this is a really interesting conversation, not just for biomanufacturing nerds, but for anyone who thinks about the long-term strategies for biotech industry growth. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me and Rahul Singhvi on the long run. Rahul Singhvi, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. It's great to be here. 
So I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, you know from my coverage that I've been following manufacturing and, and the various issues that pop up at companies from for a long time. And, you know, I think this <laughs> – I'll just throw out a comment there and see what you think because um, manufacturing used to be one of these subjects that I think senior management, C-level people, it would put them to sleep or it just wasn't a super high priority. And now I think what we've seen with the pandemic and global instability, worrying about supply chains. This is something that keeps people up at night. Is this, uh, has this moved to a, a top priority issue f- with, with companies that you talk to? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that uh, the days of um, us sort of considering manufacturing as sort of uh, taken for granted kind of uh, an issue, I, I think is not the, the case anymore as we've moved to more complex type of medicines, um, it started with biologics. We started to move away from small molecules um, that, you know, we started to pay more attention to to manufacturing. But now that we are moving into more, even more complex products uh, like cell therapies and gene therapies, uh, manufacturing is becoming really the rate limiting step, Uh, not only because these products are difficult to make, but the reliability of manufacturing, the consistency of manufacturing these type of issues are becoming also regulatory issues. And many companies are not able to get past the regulatory um, scrutiny just because, not because they don't have good, good clinical data, it's because they're not able to prove that they have reliable and consistent manufacturing. You know, it really strikes me as odd that this hasn't been considered a, a top priority issue with a lot of investors or on the minds of, of senior executives because it comes up over and over again. Um, I, I think about... The very first company that I covered as a biotech reporter, Immunex, uh, that company developed Enbrel for rheumatoid arthritis. And it was the undoing of the company. When they were unable to manufacture enough of it to meet demand, they got acquired by Amgen. And then a few years later, Genzyme um, ran into manufacturing difficulties. And that was what led to their acquisition by Sanofi. A couple of the major first-generation companies um, ended this way. And and they're over... like. Every week there are stories like this, <laughs> it seems. So um, <clears throat> at any rate, uh, I want to ask you a lot about resilience. But, you know, first off in, these show, uh, in this podcast, I like to ask about the person. So can you tell me just a little bit about yourself, Rahul? Like, where are you from? Yeah, sure. So I, I came to the U.S. Uh, in 1987 after uh, getting a, a bachelor's in chemical engineering in India. Um, and I started my my time in the U.S. Uh, at MIT, where I studied chemical engineering and got my PhD. And then uh, I was with uh, Merkin Company for 10 years. Wait, Rahul, what, what were you hoping to that you might do with a chemical engineering degree from MIT? Yeah, so I, I had no idea about biotech when I came here because I was trained very, very much like a classical chemical engineer with, you know, experience in petrochemicals. So I had no idea, but for some reason, I um, I felt like I needed to learn more about biotech. Um, and so I I was very, very fortunate to have gotten a, a, a place um, within the group of Professor Daniel Wang, uh, who was one of the, the pillars of, of the modern biotechnology, particularly biochemical engineering at MIT. And, and um, uh, I, 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 he was my mentor as a PhD uh, advisor, and um, he... During my time uh, in his group, I learned everything from just basic biology to uh, biochemical engineering and, and learned everything that uh, that I know today about 
uh, about the basics of, uh, of of biochemical engineering. Um, Can I back up just a little bit? To I mean, you're from India. Why did you want to come to America? Well, I think uh, it was uh, uh, it it was the land of opportunity, and it is the land of opportunity. And uh, for me, uh, uh, having gotten really good education in 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 the Indian Institute of Technology in India, where uh, which was known uh, in in the West as as an uh, as a top institution. Sure, uh, there, a lot of opportunities were there for students to come here, and uh, I took uh, that opportunity. And particularly because I was admitted um, at MIT, it 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 was a no brainer that I needed to come here and and take advantage of that. But you went to Daniel Wang's lab, and um, and is that where you you got interested in biologics? Yeah, uh, when I was with him and his group, which was very large at that time, and, and some you know incredible incredible people in his group um, uh, were my my colleagues. Uh, I learned a lot from from them and from my advisor. And uh, during those uh, formative years, um, I it was also uh, the time when biotech was basically emerging. This is like we're talking late late eighties, early nineties. Um, and uh, Biogen and Genentech and uh, Genzyme, uh, these type of companies were uh, were just you know coming in their own and Amgen. So um, it was very early uh, part of the uh, of the history of biotechnology, and I, I felt like I I've been I've been following this industry from the very beginning, uh, having been part of that that period. And your first job was at Merck, is that right? And what did you uh, learn there? So at Merck, I, I was in the R&D department. So I was part of the process development group there under Barry Buckland, who's also a very well-known person uh, and has um, has built uh, had built a very big uh, and, and important group uh, in the industry, um, which was considered a very progressive group at that time. Uh, and at, there was a lot of emphasis in his group on vaccines uh, because many of the projects at, at Merck uh, were in vaccines, and I was uh, pulled into those projects. So my uh, entire five, six years that I was in the R&D department were spent on developing processes for vaccines. And in particular, uh, I was given the job to develop a process for making the herpes zoster vaccine, uh, which was a very difficult project because uh, this particular virus is, is, is difficult to produce. And it was a live virus vaccine, so um, I was I, I was not only asked to make the vaccine or to develop the process to make the vaccine, but also to run the project team that was responsible for developing the herpes zoster vaccine. So very early in my career, I got the opportunity to not only work in the laboratory and, and understand how these products are made, but also to integrate the teams that are required to pull together the development program. And to run the development program, so that that was an incredible time in in my career, where uh, there was an acceleration of learning, not only of the of the science, but also of the process of t- developing a vaccine. So, live attenuated virus uh, product that has to be a carefully controlled environment, no contamination. Uh, it's it's a bio, it's a living system. So, it, it's actually it turns out to be, I mean, in hindsight, a pretty good bridge for what was going to come later with advanced biologics. Absolutely, I think the um, it's kind of interesting that you know the work that people have been doing for decades in making vaccines are the same skills that you really need today. 
to make uh, more exotic products, more advanced products like uh, viral vectors and uh, cell therapy products. The same skills, the same technologies can be used. So there's a, there's a almost like a merging of the old and the new um, when I think about what is going on today. And that's why I feel very strongly that uh, people who have been trained in vaccines are also very, very good people who can be involved in, in some of these newer modality medicines. Now, I don't want to go through your whole resume. I know you had a, a, a time at Novavax <laughs> working on vaccines there too, and, and at Takeda. So is, is vaccines kind of like a through line in your career? 100%. Yeah, for, for better or worse, uh, I, I was involved in vaccines for almost 25 years of my career. And for the longest time, I felt like I was um, I was working in the backwaters of what was important for, for pharmaceutical industry because very few people thought that uh, vaccines was the mainstream of biotechnology. Yeah, they're low profit margin, there's product liability, or at least that's how they were thought of then. Yeah, uh, and in many cases, uh, they were seen as corporate social responsibility almost, um, and not really profit-making products. Um, so, so you know, it, it, was, it was kind of left um, as, as one of those areas where it's something that it's a nice to have, but it was not necessarily the most important projects in these pharma companies. Um, but one thing I would tell you is that these are products that require incredible control over cost because um, this is one of those areas where pricing of these vaccines, to your point about low margin, is controlled by, in many cases, by the governments. And in many cases, uh, when you have to supply these products to low-income countries, you really have to pay attention to the cost. And uh, so uh, the uh, idea that not only do you have to produce these products of high quality, but also to reduce the cost was, was um, required innovation. And so right from the beginning of my career, we've been working on innovating uh, in the production of these complex products so that we can uh, co-optimize um, the quality and cost. Well, maybe that will become more important over time as I, right now, some of the advanced biologics are still pretty high priced. Maybe they've got more flexibility on their margins, maybe a little less sensitive to cost, but <laughs> maybe that will change over time. It is it is absolutely important now um, because, as you know, the um, um, uh, the cost of making these more complex products like cell therapies and gene therapies is is becoming an impediment to uh, to access and and larger utility of these type of products. And so, um, the same muscle that we built in in making vaccines uh, is now coming in handy uh, to to apply the same innovations to 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 drive the cost of these other new products down. Now. I want to talk about this last stop you made before resilience. You went to flagship uh, pioneering and, you know, they're doing lots of different things, starting companies and all of these new modalities. And I actually was at an event with uh, Hari Pujar, who I think, you know, um, uh, a few weeks ago. And he ma he told me that, you know, basically flagship has this thesis that as you move from small molecules to proteins and RNA, DNA medicines and cell therapies, as you move along in this biological journey, manufacturing of the product itself becomes more and more important and less, less rote, kind of less, well, you know, crank, simple turning of cranks and inputs and outputs. It's just, there's more art and science to it. Um, how would, how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the main 
point there is that as you become, uh, as you make these products that are more and more complex, that it's very hard to uh, characterize them completely. And when when you have uh, difficulty in characterizing the product completely, it's hard to bridge uh, one process of production to another process of production. So if you have two different processes and you're trying to make the same product and you cannot characterize a product, you cannot bridge them and say like they're the same. And because of that, people have used this, this, um, this adage that the process becomes a product. And, and this is the reason why uh, in, in these newer, more complex and more advanced type of medicines, um, the process becomes, and the manufacturing becomes central to the viability of the, of the product. So all of this was happening in the last five years, say, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. And then the pandemic hits. Um, now, now we're at the moment where a lot of people, I think Bob Nelson, Arch Venture Partners, among others, looked at this and said, kind of like, oh, shit, 80 <laughs> percent of the drug manufacturing in the world is in China and India. There's a global supply chain that's now uh, seemingly vulnerable by pandemic, now war. <laughs> it, it might be time to rethink some things. Well, how did you get involved in, in these, these conversations at that time in, in 2020? Yeah, so just to take a step back, uh, I had been talking about this idea that manufacturing and CMC, or which is chemistry manufacturing and control issues, which is process development, analytical development, et cetera, uh, are things that need to be thought through um, early in the development process and that we needed to have very good processes before we take these more complex products forward in, in clinical development. So this is something I've been talking about for some time in conferences and so on. Um, but the, the pandemic actually became the lightning rod for uh, really uh, a, call, a call to action uh, to say like, look, I think the supply chains are, are highly dependent on manufacturing that's happening in other countries. Uh, but when you peel the onion, it was not just about the, the supply chains. It's about the, the expertise that's needed to produce these type of products, whether it's vaccines or whether it is new, new modality medicines. And so the talent was also an important element to this. And the idea was, how do you consolidate the talent in one company uh, and make the, the sort of the next generation company, the, the equivalent of the Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, which became the uh, the most innovative and the most reliable semiconductor production company. How do you uh, consolidate talent and and make an, an innovative, innovation-driven manufacturing company that would become the uh, equivalent of the Taiwan Semiconductor uh, of of semi uh, of, of biomanufacturing? Uh, so this this was the idea that it it would then solve for not only. Um, supply chain issues, the manufacturing capacity issues, but also the brain power that's needed to come up with the recipes or the, the, the processes that you need to, to produce these newer uh, medicines for which uh, there, there were not really not that many good answers. But then the, the brain power, you don't all want that in one place either though, right? Because like, say, if it's in Shanghai and Shanghai goes on lockdown, like that could be a problem. Yeah. So I think the other concept was that not only did we want to put them in one company, but also in a distributed network-based company where you would have uh, multiple nodes uh, that were connected digitally, 
but where where you would get the resiliency of the point that you're making that you don't have one single point of failure that if one town goes down or one particular facility goes down because of some reason that your entire network goes down so uh for that reason uh, we ended up building this company with a with a network approach or a, a bunch of nodes uh, that were uh, part of the uh, uh, of the capacity of the company. Well, I think that that might be a pretty good description here of resilience. But you know, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, the, it's the company name, but it, it's also a concept in manufacturing. For, can, can you like explain what that really means? Yeah. Uh, so there are a number of ways by which we can describe this. One is robustness of the process itself of making the drug. So uh, you know, the first aspect of resiliency is that, you know, if you have deviations or you, 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 your, your process has some vari- variability in the raw materials or in, uh, in, in the operating conditions, that the product is still the same. So that is the first sort of m- most fundamental element of resiliency in manufacturing. But then you can take it to the next level and say like, okay, if you have a r- robust process, but you're making it in multiple sites, so then you have resiliency because you're not depending on one particular site just in case it goes down. And the next level of resiliency comes from supply chain resiliency that, okay, where are you sourcing the materials that are needed to produce the product? Are they coming from one single source or do you have multiple sources? And are those sources uh, uh, distant enough from each other that uh, if one of those sources goes down that you still have uh, you know, completely independent source to get the, the, the raw materials? And, and so it all comes down to how do you run this thing without uh, with with as much um, uh, uh, without some sort of the dependencies on 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 things that can take take the whole thing down. So resiliency is across process sites, uh, supply chain, and uh, and ultimately uh, it comes down to uh, people that that you have to have enough uh, talent in the system that that if if there's a reason why you lose a person or here or there that you still have the ability to run the process that the knowledge is not it's sitting in one one person's head so so we look at resiliency across all of these factors and um, and and the way we are building the company is to ensure that uh that this type of a company can withstand the shocks of of any of those kinds that that I just described to you now, at the same time, there were all kinds of companies in cell therapy, gene therapy, advanced biologics, who um, have traditionally gone out to contract manufacturers. Uh, they've they've kind of kept their science in-house and um, contracted out for a lot of the manufacturing, but have found it um, you know increasingly difficult in some cases to control some of the parameters they want or or to get the work done on deadlines. And so there's been a movement of sorts to bring a lot of this in-house. So you got a lot of companies that are out there trying to do their own manufacturing. Um, when you've looked at that, what what um, what are kind of the strengths and weaknesses of that approach? Because that's kind of what part of it you're up against, right? Well, I think I completely understand when companies are interested in bringing it in-house because they want control. They want control over a number of things. Number one, they want to ensure that their IP uh, is under um, is, is protected. Uh, they also want to have control over um, when they can make the product because, as you as you know, there's a lot of variability in early stage um, process development, early stage drug development, where there are a lot of things that can that that are unanticipated and can can go wrong, and you cannot 
like fully plan everything and say like, okay, I'm going to make this product in this month. Um, and, and the problem with that is that when you're working with a contract manufacturer and, and you have locked in that slot and for some reason something goes off uh, the plan, the next lot may not be available for six months. So this level of control of like, okay, you know, I, I need to control my own destiny is the reason why companies uh, go and, and build their own facilities and, their, and keep this under control, their own um, control. Um, but there, there are of course some cons to this, uh, this approach. And one of them is duplication. Like if there are a hundred companies and they all want to have their own manufacturing, you're creating a hundred facilities and, uh, not all of them are going to be full. Uh, and when you're, you have a lot of fixed costs associated with these facilities, you're running a, a loss. And so this approach is also very expensive. Uh, the other problem with this approach is that you need talent. Uh, and there's just, as, as we, we see an explosion in the number of biotech companies coming online, there's just not enough talent for every one of them to have all of this done at the level that people expect. So, um, so that's an issue. Um, so, and, and the last point I would make is that um, in many of these newer type of drugs, um, you know, the, the biotech companies are, are, are meant to develop the products. That's what they're valued for. And if you don't have the technology to make the product, then you need to have the technology development going on in simultaneously with the product development. And when, push comes to shove, I think, and, and resources are, are scarce, uh, companies would pivot more and more towards product development because that's where, that's where the value is. And so the technology development takes a back seat. And so people make these products with whatever is available. And a lot of the times they are based on um, processes that are not necessarily optimal. And so then you end up making the product, but you don't have the right manufacturing. And so you're now stuck <clears throat> with... Um, uh, with the non-optimal cost of goods, and and then you have issues with access of how many people can really benefit from that. But that's that is your product, and that's what you have to take to the FDA. You, you can't change it midstream, or because then you go back to the starting point. That's right, and and, and it's hard to bridge. Remember, I mentioned this idea that is as these products make more and more complex. Once you sort of lock in the process and you make the product one particular way, it's very difficult to change the process and not have the risk of changing the product. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And if you like listening to The Long Run, check out my writing at timmermanreport.com. You can subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time to get my weekly front points column, my coverage of emerging startups, and a wide range of original contributing writers who bring keen perspective on relevant issues to biotech executives and investors. Group discounts are available. Go to timmermanreport.com and hit subscribe.
So this is important context for the founding of Resilience. Can you tell me a little bit about like, what's the vision for this company? You, you kind of alluded to it with ta- a Taiwan semiconductor analogy, but what are you trying to create here? Yeah, so our view in this company is that we want to become uh, a company that is not able, not just able to provide the capacity for, uh, for a customer to make their product, but we want to be able to solve their problems. So, which means that we have to have technologies, we need to have uh, our own R&D. So it's an innovation-based, it's a manufacturing technology company that uh, invests heavily in creating technologies, in creating answers to problems of the new, new drugs, and is able to provide those answers and at the same time do the work to make the drug using those new processes. So that is the platform that we're trying to build is that we can, a company can come in and simply say like, hey, this is the product I want to make, whether it's a biologic or whether it's a viral vector or whether it is an RNA molecule or whether it is a a cell therapy and say like, I just want to make it and you guys do what you need to do to be able to uh, find the right platform on which the drug should be made, do the process development, find the analytics, do the regulatory filings, and uh, at least in so far as the process or, or process descriptions are concerned, um, and then uh, scale it to, to make it commercial for me. So this entire platform of technology to process to GMP manufacturing is done by us. That is our vision, that we can create this platform so that our customers can relieve themselves of doing this work. Otherwise, what happens in today's world is that half of the work is done by the companies because they think that they need to develop the technology or the processes. And then they, then they give the order to a, 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 a contract manufacturer and say like, here's, here's my process, go and make it. And that becomes very inefficient um, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, these companies don't have enough time to come up with good processes and so they're giving order to make something with the, with the non-optimal process. It sounds like the process development, the technology development is the, the key extra pieces that you provide beyond a traditional contract manufacturer. 100%. And we invest heavily in these areas. Uh, our own money, we, we, uh, we, we believe that this is, this is the key uh, that is going to be uh, important to changing the way uh, manufacturing is done in the future. Because once you do that, then, uh, then you can, uh, then you can imagine a world in which, in which the product development companies are focused on what they do best, which is the discovery and the and the and the drug development, and and we do what what we are good at, which is to do the manufacturing, because that's all we think about twenty four seven. Okay, so you started out, um, got a lot of attention, I think, with the Series A, big Series A of eight hundred million dollars, fall of twenty twenty. Um, now that that's a lot of money. Um, so you, you naturally go out on something of a shopping spree. What did you do with that first uh, first round of cash? So we've done, uh, uh, of course, you know, we built the business starting from buying some businesses. So uh, that was part of our strategy is that it's just build and buy. So uh, as, as I said, the company has two, two parts, the capacity and technology. And so we we purchased um, a couple of companies that had public information, Therapure in Canada, uh, Ology Bioservices in Florida. Uh, we acquired um, uh, part of Sanofi Genzymes uh, Manufacturing Network here in Alston in, in the Boston area and a couple other facilities. So, so these kind of created the critical mass that we needed to initially to get in the business. We acquired some customers through that. 
So that kind of started the business. And at the same time, we established laboratories uh, for our um, process development and technology development that I mentioned to you. Uh, and we also acquired some technology companies in addition to just acquiring manufacturing companies. So a combination of, uh, of, of uh, buying and, and building technologies, manufacturing technologies and manufacturing capacity is how we got started. And over time, we have also built new capacity, uh, both um, infrastructure-based capacity as well as technology capacity. And so now we are in a, a point uh, that coming up to our two-year anniversary where we have um, 11 sites in the United States and uh, in Canada and uh, over a million square feet of GMP space and almost 1,700 employees. Wow. Okay. And how, how much uh, volume can you put through there in biologics and cell therapies? Sure. So we have decided to, to focus on five modalities, biologics, vaccines, cell therapies, gene therapy, vectors, and RNA-based or, or nucleic acid-based medicines. Um, so these are the five areas in which we focus on, and we believe that we have critical mass in each of them so we can make preclinical materials, um, which is uh, toxicology materials and, and pre, pre uh, uh, or animal work-based materials, all the way to uh, phase one, phase two, phase three uh, materials, and ultimately commercial materials uh, for all of these uh, modalities. Uh, some of the facilities are not fully up operational, so they're still being built. But once they are fully built out, then we will have the capacity to produce um, everything from preclinical to commercial in, in these five modalities. Uh, the, the capacity, uh, of course, is different depending on the modality. So we have a lot of capacity for making uh, monoclonal antibodies um, and uh, we are behind a, uh, on, on cell therapies where we are still building out our commercial facility. So, so they are sort of different stages, but, um, but in the next couple of years, we should have um, complete end-to-end -end capacity for all of the five modalities. And 11 sites, are they all in North America? All of them are in North America, uh, only one of which is actually in Canada. The remaining 10 are in, in the United States. Uh-huh. And uh, I th why is that? I think it was it was envisioned right from the very beginning that we needed to uh, to to build a base in uh, in 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 the U.S. Um, largely because of the supply chain resiliency questions that were raised. Right, so we wanted to become um, fully independent of uh, supply chains uh, outside of the United States. We also believed that this was the right place to build a company of of this kind because talent was very important and uh, technologies were very important. So we felt that building the base in the United States, and again, I'm saying the base um, in the U.S. where you have that critical mass of capacity, talent, uh, technologies would be the right thing to do. And then you can, over time, move outside of the U.S. as you had that sort of uh, the base built out. Well, and obviously a lot of the, the ingredients, the components that you use are, are coming from elsewhere. Yes, yeah, we still have high level of dependency of, of supply chain uh, from outside of the US, but my goal is that at least in so, in so far as critical reagents are concerned, we want to be able to make uh, those in uh, in the US or in, 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 uh, in parts of the world where we have much more control over the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you... Um... Can you talk about a few of your early partnerships? Because you've announced a few of these now with um, 
small biotech companies. Um, how do you structure these deals and who do you seek to work with? Sure. So in addition to doing fee-for-service work, which we do, uh, we also have a more flexible business model where we uh, can work as a partner. So we move away from just a pure service provider to a, a, a manufacturing partner, in which case we can provide them technology and we can do service for them at risk of, of product development. So this is a very, uh, this, I, I'm sure this is not 100% new, but uh, for us, uh, this, this is important because we want to align our incentives with our customers. And it's particularly important in the new modality medicines where we can truly provide uh, some support that is going to be critical for the, for the success of the drug, um, particularly if we can come up with some technology in manufacturing, for example. And so we can truly act as equal partners with the drug development company. So many of the deals that you've seen are of that nature where we have uh, we have gone in and said like, look, we, are, we want to align our incentives. We like the biology. We want to be your manufacturing partner. We can give you the service in return for backend economics. And at the same time, we can provide you technology. So we are aligning, we are acting as one company, except that we are carrying the water on manufacturing. Meanwhile, the, the drug company is doing what they do best, which is the discovery and the development of the, of the drug itself. So you are, as a fee-for-service contract manufacturer, you are getting paid on a, you know, a steady you know, fee-for-service basis, which reduces some of your downside, but you're also able to participate in some of the upside. If these products are successful, ro royalties, milestones could come your way. You, you also do some cost sharing. Yes, that's correct. And it just, it just turns out that um, these, type of, uh, these type of business um, models are more applicable in one area versus the other. Uh, for example, uh, in cell therapy, which is uh, an emerging area where there's a lot of uh, need for technology, uh, th the companies are much more amenable to doing risk sharing and value sharing projects with us. And we are very interested in that too. But in more and more mature modalities like biologics, it's the, the the business model is generally a fee for service model. So by combining different uh, different business models with different modalities, we are able to accomplish our our goals of uh, ensuring that we have a steady, solid um, revenue as well as uh, we have uh, uh, the upside in certain companies where we we think we can uh, provide more value and where we can also participate in the upside. How many customers have you inherited and how many new ones have you brought on? So as of like the last time I looked, I think we have almost 50 customers and um, about 50% of them have been inherited from our acquisitions and about 50% are new. And in many of the, and what I consider new are also expansions of work in existing customers. So that I would count as new work as well. Can you say a little bit more about the geography as well? Because these, I mean, you mentioned they're all in the United States uh, and one in Canada, but there, things seem to be kind of spread around the map. Is that an important concept for resilience? Yes. Um, so initially, I think, uh, as I mentioned, our, our focus is in North America, uh, and uh, most of our customers, actually, all, almost all of them, are based in the U.S. or Canada. But we are uh, completely aware of the fact that there is a need 
for national resilience in other parts of the world. We have been contacted by a number of governments, uh, investors, uh, companies in other parts of the world that are interested in partnering with us so that we can establish our network in those countries. And you will probably see some of that happening over the years. Um, and some of it can happen actually quite quite soon. Uh, but uh, the idea there is that these nodes that we put in other parts of the world can benefit from the base that we are building in the US because of the digital connectivity so that um, they can get the benefit of all of the work that is being done in the US. So if I, if I put a, a facility in a different part of the world, uh, they are uh, they're almost getting the, the full benefit of the network that is already established in the US. Interesting. Um, so you could you could export this model. <laughs> um, so coming back to this technology development, and I know this is going to vary from one modality to the next, but this is something Hari said to me. He said he thought that Moore's Law type improvements are, are seen and, and ex- expected to continue. Um, do, you, do you agree? Yes, I do. And again, this is as you put more and more focus on the manufacturing technologies uh, as opposed to product development, uh, the, the, the innovation that is going to be applied to these manufacturing processes will drive the cost down. Uh, there is a lot of uh, opportunity here to, uh, to have something like Moore's Law uh, applicable here. And what kind of possibilities does that open up for, for your business and for your customers? Well, let's take an example of making viral vectors for gene therapy. Um, this is an example that uh, can give you some idea of, uh, of the kind of improvements we can make. Uh, right now, uh, we make viral vectors using plasmids. Uh, to to deliver the genes that are necessary for uh, for assembling the the capsids, for example, this is traditionally what is being done. Um, our approach is that if we can create a cell line that is uh, what is called quote unquote a producer cell line that has all of the genes that are necessary to, for assembling the the, the capsid uh, embedded into the genome of the, the producer cell line, then you can uh, you can get rid of the need for those plasmids, and you can also make this much more scalable so that you can run this uh, these type of production systems at a higher volume and uh, and and not be limited by uh, things like electroporation or other means by which you deliver those plasmids into the cells which limit the scale of the of the process so uh, innovations like that uh, can dramatically reduce the cost of goods of something like a, a, an adeno associated viral vector and and that is the kind of innovation that is going to be necessary to drive the cost down to the point where these type of therapies could be useful for, for larger indications uh, or more community or uh, uh, more more prevalent indi- indications as opposed to just rare diseases. Um, and in in many cases, uh, even for rare diseases, it can reduce the cost down to the point that more patients can benefit from these things. Well, I think gene therapy is a good example with you know, million-dollar price tags for drugs. I think everyone intuitively understands that that's a, a pretty limited um, patient population that's that's ever going to reach at that price. Um, but you know, coming back to advanced biologics, now it's my understanding. I, I think that I don't know if it's monoclonal antibodies or other types of, of protein drugs. 
the process improvements have come down something like three or four orders of magnitude process yield improvements from the early days. That's kind of an untold story that like we can make these things a lot more efficiently and, and scalably than than in years past. Do you, do you think that that's a pattern that we can expect from, as you sort of alluded to there, with gene therapy and cell therapy? Yeah, and, and even in biologics, there's more room there. Uh, for example, you know, there yes, there has been three orders of magnitude or two or three orders of magnitude reduction in cost of goods, but we have we can do more with reducing the upfront capital investment. Uh, if it takes me to build a billion dollar facility to to reduce my cost of goods by two or three orders of magnitude, that still is a huge hurdle for us. So if you can do both, that is, you can reduce the cost of goods by two or three orders of magnitude, and also reduce your total capex investment by using something like continuous manufacturing, then, then that's, a, that's an incremental advancement uh, that will further enable the use of these type of therapies in areas like infectious diseases. So that's an example of further innovation that, that can benefit uh, even biologics. Another example is cell-free manufacturing. Um, cell-free manufacturing can speed up the, the, uh, how quickly you can make a biologic. And this could be a particular benefit in pandemics where uh, you have to produce a product very fast. And instead of growing cells for many days and or having us to, to produce a cell line, you can very quickly produce um, a, a protein-based product using a cell-free system, literally in a matter of days. Um, and, and that could be a huge innovation uh, in pandemic preparedness, for example. So even in the more traditional protein and biologics-based um, products, there is sufficient uh, room for further innovation, like the two things I, I just pointed out, continuous manufacturing and cell-free based manufacturing of proteins. And, and the same, and, and, and I believe the same type of ideas can be applied to uh, viral vectors where the hurdles are, um, you know, I mean, where, where there's a lot of room for improvement and uh, production of a constitutive product, producer cell line is an example, but the same ideas of continuous manufacturing and other type of ideas can be applied to that to further drive the cost down there. I want to come back to something you said earlier about the talent. Um, this is this is important. Um, are you finding it hard to hire people? Is it in short supply? Do you have to train people? How, what's happening on that side of your business? Yeah, uh, the talent is a key uh, key ingredient in this whole process, and uh, it is hard to hi hire good people because they're in so much demand, particularly technical people, and. Uh, as as words is spreading about resilience and what we're trying to do and uh, and uh, hopefully people are trying uh, learning that this is now the place where the most e exciting work in biomanufacturing process development technology development is happening i think people are uh, more and more interested in coming here but but it's still a it's it's difficult to to hire people uh, and particularly um, extremely smart technical people uh, we have been very fortunate, I have to say, in in being able to attract some really top talent, and uh, uh, but we have to do more work there, and we have to continue to build that. Do your people get allocated to specific projects where they really get immersed, like for customer A or customer B, or do they move around from one project to another and you know retool the equipment and all that? That is a really important point. Uh, 
Luke, I think uh, my experience having been in product companies uh, for the last 20 some years, 25 some years, is that whenever I was working on a on a vaccine or a product, the, the person who is working on it gets really attached to the project, to the product itself. And that is what drives a lot of the ownership and the and the level of sort of innovation. So I really want in this company, we want in this company a culture where the people who are working on a project get attached to that project, that get attached to that product to the same level of ownership that they would if it was their own product. Uh, that is a culture we're trying to build. And so that is how we are allocating people to these various projects. We want to have dedicated people on certain projects where they're really, really good at um, solving problems in those particular modalities and also where they can get attached to it, uh, the project in the same way that they would if it were their own product. So if you've got 1,700 people now, um, how many people do you think you'll have or, or you'll need um, in a few years? Yeah, so this is this is a key question because I think where you're going with this is like, are you going to scale the number of people the same at the rate at which you'll scale the number of projects? And um, and that is not how I, I think this business will scale over time. Uh, we want to be able to, first of all, yes, the number of people will increase as, as the business scales, but hopefully in a nonlinear manner uh, where uh, use of technology like digitization uh, um, and other type of approaches, modularization, standardization type of approaches can lead to us being able to do more work more efficiently so that uh, the same number of people can 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 do more uh, more projects. So that is uh, that is our approach to how we want to serve more customers over time, um, and not get into a situation where our work is limited by number of people or number of facilities or number of labs. Are there uh, some examples of other companies that you look at as a template or a model for what you're trying to do? Well, I think our biggest inspiration comes from technology companies where nonlinear scaling is very uh, common. So, for example, Amazon Web Services is a great example of a company that uh, has scaled beautifully and has been able to serve a lot of customers without really expanding the company as, as, as much. So we take inspiration from companies like that that uh, that do the kind of work that we want to do in our in our sector, but at the same time use technology to be able to serve more customers without um, the brute force approach of just expanding the number of people or number of facilities. I I thought you might say something like Moderna, <laughs> because you know there was a company that invested years ago in you know, digital efficient processes for scaling up. And I, I mean, I, like many others at the start of this pandemic thought um, they might have a decent shot with the mRNA technology that it might work. But I, I was worried, could, could they manufacture like a billion doses? Because that had never been done before. Turns out that they did that uh, quite well. well. I would say like, I, I do find Moderna to be an amazing company that way. Yes. I, I think that I've seen that company from a, up in close because I was with Flagship, which uh, was a company that actually gave birth to Moderna. And I know Moderna from its early days. It's a, it's a very inspiring company because and its leadership because they did have the foresight of investing heavily in digital technologies and in uh, process development um, because that is what actually has come in handy as they have 
learn to scale this or, or they when they were asked to scale this so fast it was because they they had already worked out some of the major kinks in the system um and um, and and that took time it took time it uh, the company had been trying to fix this for the last decade or so so when it came time for prime time they when the when, when the the world asked them to do this important work uh they were able to leverage all of that experience that they had built to to uh, and deliver uh, i i think that this is really a um an incredible testimony to the foresight and the leadership of that company and it's in somewhat of a contrast to its competitor biontech which uh, has mrna technology as well but um leans on its manufacturing partner pfizer to to reach that global scale yeah uh again you know i don't know biontech as well as i do i, I know moderna but um but that's another model that I think works as, as has been shown where a great company like Pfizer that has incredible muscle in, in scaling manufacturing um, was able to partner um, seamlessly with a early stage uh, young innovator company like BioNTech and the combined entity was able to deliver for the world. So uh, it's, it's, it's not a one size fit all approach, but it just kind of goes to say that there are a number of different ways to uh, to skin the cap. Can you sketch out a long range vision for resilience for me here, like five, 10 years down the road, you're going to have how many facilities in North America and around the world and, and how quickly will you be able to move on, um, you know, when, when a need strikes? Yeah, so we obviously have a long-term plan, uh, and uh, we, uh, we 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 are not at a liberty of, of of disclosing all of that. But it's sufficient to say that we we will have much more capacity than we have at the moment. But more importantly, uh, what what you can expect in the next several years is that as we go through the process, this journey of building this company, it's not just about acquiring capacity and building more factories. It's about building that expertise and gaining the uh, the trust of our customers that that this company is truly uh, doing what it's uh, so what is saying it it wants to, which is to to um, to build processes that are reliable, to deliver uh, for our customers on time, to uh, to become that athlete that we aspire to become in the space where we. Uh, have the talent and the technologies to be able to solve problems for the world so that more companies can develop their drugs and bring more products to patients. Um, that is that is what success looks like for me, uh, Luke. Uh, and that's that's more important than any metric of um, of capacity in terms of number of factories or sales, et cetera, is that have we really delivered on the mission? Uh, have we really delivered the mission of becoming the most trustworthy, reliable partner for the biotech industry when it comes to manufacturing? And have we delivered on the promise of creating a platform that gives them the end-to-end service, which allows them to not spend their money on doing this so that they can spend more money on bringing more drugs to patients? Ultimately, it could mean more drugs for patients and lower cost products available to more people around the world. hundred percent, hundred percent. Look, we don't, we, we don't set pricing, but what we can do, what we, it's our mission to enable that access through 
reducing the lowest common denominator, which is cost of goods and cost of development. So if through our work, we can reduce the cost of development, if we can reduce the cost of goods, and that enables a company that is developing the drug to reduce their price and, and get more of that drug available to more patients, that is that that would be successful. You know, last thing I want to ask you, Rahul, um, I've had a couple of guests on this show previously um, have talked, that are working on different service elements, let's call it, for cell therapy, gene therapy companies. Um, Vanetti, uh, Amy DeRoss was on providing, you know, supply chain logistics. Cell Evolve, Daryl Porter talking about commercial services for cell therapy companies. Now here you, resilience, um, contract manufacturing and technology process development, so that these companies don't have to control and own everything uh, and be the fully integrated biopharmaceutical company that people have talked about for decades. There can be a new division of labor. Let's say this is a term that Vanita Agarwala uses at A16Z, um, that there are going to be other players in the ecosystem who contribute value and capture some of the value as well. Um, do, do you see this as kind of a, a long-term evolution of the industry that you're part of? Yeah. I mean, you, we don't have to look too far. I mean, you just look at other industries that have become much more efficient. Uh, look at the semiconductor industry, look at software. Um, again, you, you find these horizontal scalers in these industries, uh, which enable more products to come to market and at lower cost. Um, I mean, it, it, Zoom is a great example uh, or an internet software company like Zoom or Netflix that um, is just one of or two of hundreds of uh, software as a service companies that have become so viable so fast because of, of cloud computing and cloud computing platforms. Um, and Amazon Web Services or other platforms like that have have been critical in, in enabling these type of companies to come to market and, and imagine how much they have helped us in our lives. So we think that same thing is going to happen here where the old ways of looking at the you know fully degraded pharma companies would it be okay if you only had a handful of them. But when you have hundreds of them coming to life because of the incredible uh, evolution that we're seeing in biology or the revolution in biology, almost like we're, we're learning more and more about the basis of disease every day, which is leading to hundreds of new companies, um, we don't think that that's this approach of fully integrated um, pharma companies uh, really uh, is the right model. Um, and I think division of labor and, and having horizontal scalers like us would be critical in enabling and truly industrializing our industry so that more patients can benefit from the, uh, from the biology. I guess you could say it, uh, it takes a village to manufacture well, to, to, to really make drugs optimally. If we don't do this, we will, we will continue to propagate in a cottage industry because this is the definition of a cottage industry where everybody is doing everything. And it, it's okay if you only have five people uh, who, who have to do this, but if you have hundreds of them, then, then you're really becoming incredibly inefficient. Well, Rahul, I hope uh, the investments that you're making today um, prove um, to be um, fruitful and wise ones um, next time we talk um, and years down the road. Thank you very much, Luke, for this opportunity to speak with you today. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. 
See you next episode.